AI is all about the data it's being fed, but if it is feasting off of relatively recent data, it's going to be able to pick up on trends and things that a thousand humans wouldn't be able to pick up on. Stand by, I'll be right there. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 374. Today is Sunday, the 24th of March, 2020. My name is Minterdahl, and I'm your host for this podcast. This week also happens to be when the podcast festival goes live, May 28th, where we've got a fabulous lineup of podcast superstars like Kara Swisher and a brilliant opening act with Tom Morley. You can still grab your tickets at podcastfestival.live. This week's interview is with Vince Jeffs. Vince is Senior Director of Product Strategy, Marketing AI and Decisioning at Pegasystems which is holding its Inspire online event on June the 2nd, and I highly recommend you attend. Vince is also currently the number six ranked overall author on CustomerThink.com and the number two on Customer Analytics. In this conversation, Vince and I discuss how AI has been applied during the pandemic, how to use AI responsibly, for example, in developing the best customer experience, Pega's ethical bias check to help guide AI implementation, and a number of interesting other topics all around AI, ethics, and empathy. Vince Jeffs, pleasure to have you on the show. You are based uh, outside of Atlanta, as I understand it, and you work at a company I've become more and more familiar with that is Pegasystems, that works in helping companies improve their marketing, their relationships, using a lot of artificial intelligence. And the thing that really drew me into Pegasystems from the beginning was the fact that you had a, a significant emphasis on empathy. So I'm delighted to have you on the show. You're the third person from Pega that I've had a chance to have on the show, including the CEO, Alan Treffler, and Rob um, in, in Holland. Um, in your own words, how do you describe what you do, who you are, Vince? Thanks uh, for having me, mentor. And I guess I could say third's a charm. <laughs> uh, that might be a little presumptuous. Uh, we'll see, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, my name's Vince Jeffs. Um, and again, pleasure to be talking with you. Uh, I'm a senior director at Pega for product strategy for our AI and decisioning area. So um, what that really means is I kind of help think about what we should be doing with the product in terms of building out new features in a roadmap for what we do in AI. Um, and then also thinking about things like, you know, partnerships that we should have to make sure that we're in you know, the solution that we're bringing to our clients is, is uh, sort of full, full for their uh, getting value out of it. So in, in your LinkedIn profile, you talk about having a strong passion for what you do. I'm wondering how that passion has morphed or evolved in this pandemic period that we've had? Yeah, um, it, I think um, when, when I think about why I got into this space, it was because that um, I feel like if you can help bridge gaps or, you know, build bridges, that's helpful to just humankind in general. So, if I can build a bridge between the technology folks and the business folks, for instance, 
and, and I can do that either through communication, through uh, having a, a different way of, of expressing concepts, uh, helping translate requirements into technical things, um, then you're, you're having an impact. And that's why I got into it. I have a marketing background. I, I think you have a marketing background too, but I've always been like super interested in technology. And, mm -hmm. and I got interested a long time ago. So when I sort of fast forward all that, we don't want to talk too much about my long past, um, but when I fast forward all that to what we just encountered, I, you know, personally, I thought, wow, what are we going through here? Is it, it feels very similar to a few events I've gone through. I mean, in my lifetime, like, you know, I definitely lived through number of market crashes and, you know, certainly 9-11 and other things like this but it felt very different. It felt like the cliff was dramatic. Like we fell off it dramatically and society just changed like overnight, which mm -hmm. I had never experienced. And I think that what's different here with the technology and the marketing, if you will, and the, and the customer engagement is brands suddenly found themselves like having to be more agile than they ever imagined they'd have to be having to completely change their businesses in some cases. Like I'm not making autos anymore. I'm going to make ventilators, mm. you know? Um, and that's just one example. So I feel like um, in my passion was, wow, the things that we've been doing to bring this agility uh, and this ability to not be completely reliant on it to take six months to do something is extremely important now. And mm. so our message sort of is that's, you know, that got this whole area put on steroids overnight. It's amazing the types of challenges that I would come across in terms of the dysfunction between marketing and IT and the lack of communication and understanding one of the other. Oh, you don't know what I'm doing in business. I'm a marketer. Well, don't ask me to do an IT project overnight. I've got to debug it. I've got to code it. It takes time for the stuff. And then when it costs money, oh, gosh. And so there's so many little conflicts that we've had. And what we've seen in this, so this agility, this interesting, there seems to be a lot of technologies that I didn't expect come up and some that I kind of thought would show up that didn't. Drones. I, I it's, it's fascinating, the, the opportunities for drones to participate, to be that socially distanced technology. How about AI? How has AI played a role? I mean, I can only imagine, because obviously I've been tracking it, but it seems very abstract for me to understand how AI could have played a role in this pandemic. Um, yeah, I think, I guess my answer to that would be like, how are we going to define AI? That always becomes the, the question. I, so let me take a stab at at least the way that, yeah, sure. that I've sort of viewed it as I've been involved with this sort of area in this application of it, which is in, you know, marketing technology, customer engagement, CRM, which it sounds like you've been in also. Sure. Um, I, I would say that, um, the ability to find insights and uh, and predict things uh, is extremely important now um, because if you can detect something that is changing and then help automate the you know the the new solution to that 
change that needs to be, that's probably a problem that's existing now that didn't exist a week or a month ago, um, then that's going to be helpful to the people that need the outcomes that need that need, you know, more bandwidth, for instance, for, because they're working out of the home, uh, or, you know, need healthcare that you know needs protective equipment, um, or, uh, you know, an insurance company that needs to tell people that, you know, you need coverage to go out and deliver food or something. Um, and uh, and so I think that the ability for AI to pick up on this and help with these various situations is is you know it's it's working in concert with humans. That's what I've always. Some people look at AI as like uh, the way Hollywood is like, oh, it's this artificial thing that's going to come and just like you know squash us, right? And uh, and it's machines taking over, but. I've always looked at it as it's the symbiotic relationship between man and tool, right? And it's just another tool. It's a very cool tool in many cases, um, but it helps us do the things that we need to do for each other. Um, so that's, you know, I think it's very helpful in a pandemic. So one of the things that I've observed is that the we don't have any historical basis for what we're doing you just said it you know we're it's the first time so we can't go back and and use some benchmark this is so typical in business so this agility and 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 the ability to have real-time information makes us much more credible because the story you want to tell or the message you might be saying today is completely irrelevant next week you know, where we are in the lockdown, where we are in the number of deaths, in your city different from my city. So I can see how being real time, segmented, agile is useful, yet I always hear with AI, you always need to have data sets. Mm. So how, how on earth do you manage to find the data to learn to create the, you know, to create the AI that allows you to make the messages that are relevant to Atlanta versus London? Right. Well, I mean, I think a lot of the data is still streaming into us, right, that was before the pandemic hit. Um, and I think the part of the problem that organizations have is that they haven't been able to generally keep up with the amount of data that's being stored in their clouds or in their data centers anyways. So a lot of the data is there um, on location of people and preferences and buying behavior and how they respond to advertisements on their websites. Um, the question is, are they putting the right things on their websites now? Are they actually putting relevant messages up there that even matter now versus, you know, two months ago? Um, are they, um, you know, are they listening to the latest behaviors, which really matter the most right now, right? I mean, I might have behaved in a very different way six months ago, and that could be almost irrelevant now to what my needs are. So being able to pick up on my latest intent is like becomes the most critical. Yeah, so because, I think you, you know, at some point you imagine you're playing through, oh, this is just a stupid little virus, and all of a sudden your father gets sick. <laughs> Then, then talk about how context changes the way you're going to view things. Not, you know, or your business goes out of business, and then it, it, oh, this stupid pandemic thing. 
brings up for me, Vince, this notion of, of how do you be responsible with this? Because you might have access to data that makes you get an extra dollar, you know, saves your business, but is it responsible in the way? So how on earth do you construct a, an ethical framework for your AI in something we've never done before? Yeah, um, I, I think that it really is a, that's a question that demands that humans take responsibility for what their tools are doing. Um, so this idea, and hey, we know it, right? You can, you can put the machine into action and kind of walk away, right? And let it make decisions. And we've seen that happen. <laughs> we saw that happen with Microsoft and Tay, right? right. Where, Honestly, they kind of walked away and said, let this thing make, have, have some chats for a while and, you know, it'll, it'll be cool. Um, well, two things there. They didn't like it. So having some responsibility over testing it beforehand or rolling it out in a controlled fashion is one set of responsibility. The second is like to be monitoring it for humans to be like, you know, at the switch, right? Um, and, and to be ready to dial back or, you know, take it offline or dial it up, you know, if it's making great decisions and it needs to be making more to more people because that's empathetic um, because that's where the need is and it's picking up on that. So I think AI is, as you say, it's all about the data it's being fed, but um, if it is um, feasting off of relatively recent data, it's going to be able to pick up on trends and things that a thousand humans wouldn't be able to pick up on. Right, because we have our filters, we have our biases. I mean, of course, AI does as well. What, what would be interesting for me, Vince, is to think about how you inform the individuals, these human beings that are participating with the AI because you need to give them some instructions. So, you know, let's say person A, B, and C, all right, when this happens, I need you to go down that route. When this happens, I need you to dial it up. When this happens, I need you to dial it down. And, and I, have to, I have to imagine, because I, I'm, I'm not expert enough, but I have to imagine it's a complex roadmap to provide to human beings who sometimes interpret things according to their biases anyway. Yeah, a great point. I, I think that you've got to bake in um, some controls. So you have to bake in, first of all, you have to bake in some policies, if you will. And, and what I mean by that is, and hopefully those are good policies, right? Because we've seen like organizations can have cultures that don't end up in, you know, really ethical frameworks and others can have more ethical frameworks. So some of that is going to be dependent on the leadership and the, the you know, the, the moral fiber of that organization. But let's assume that the intentions are good generally. Um, so if they are, then I think you have to, you have to almost like a guidebook, you have to have some of that baked in so that the machine is actually following some of those principles. Um, and, and those are some of the black and white decisions. You know, Should I be sending something to somebody under 18 or not? I mean, some of this is just based on legality, right? But then there's the grayer decisions like, you know, I, I could extend this person alone, but you know what? I actually have information that kind of 
tells me that they're likely to end up in collections in another like six months. Well, that becomes like a more ethical decision that you're Big making time. ahead of time, right? And, and, and you, can, you can program, you can have a, you know, a, a suitability rule, if you will, that says that, you know, the way we feel about this type of uh, treatment right now is that it should not go to these people, even though they're eligible for it. I have personal experience in conversations that were along the lines of, well, if we don't sell it to them, they'll buy it from somebody else. Even if buying it from me or them means they'll go out of business within six months. And, and the, the sort of the, the way so many companies, and certainly the one that I worked for was, well, inshallah, you know, at least they bought it from me. And, and what is it, how do you, I mean, maybe is it, is it really a question of leadership principles that you decide the way how you make the business is more important than just making the business? Yeah, and I think some of that gets into the, the whether you're in, in it for the long run or whether you're in it for the short, short-term profits, if you will. Mm. So, you know, if, um, if, you're, if you're really in it for the long haul, then... Um, you may make some slightly different decisions. You may say that, you know what, it's not in the best interest for this customer to do this. And I do know that my competitor will do it, but I also know that it's not in the best interest of this customer. And so that there is a good chance that that decision will bear fruit, either with that customer coming back to you at some point and saying, you know what, I was wrong. I should have bought it from you. Uh, or somebody else finding out about it and it kind of going a little viral. And then again, your reputation being upheld and, and in the long run, you, you know, you, you, you doing more business because you were on the up and up. In my, my last book, I talked about how actually the person to whom I'm speaking the most is my employee. Because if I tell my employee, screw this customer, you're making that employee look fairly shitty in front of the mirror the following morning as they, you know, as they prepare for work. And, and I think that is the sort of the, the, the way to have engaged employees. And if you can imagine treating your employees the way you want them to treat your customers, the chances are they might also code the AI to be the right way as well. So it's a whole sort of ecosystem in order to get that, ethical structure and the empathy down the pipe because if you want to have an empathic ai decision making process but you treat your employees like dog do then it, how how on earth do you end up with a responsible or an empathic ai yeah um i totally agree and i you know i i turn around the 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 statement of death by a thousand cuts into success by doing a thousand little things right. Mm. Um, and I think my experience in, in the jobs I've been lucky enough to do over my career with some really great companies. I mean, I've really, I mean, if I wasn't working in what I felt like was a great company that I got woke up every day and thought I'm proud to work for this company, I would, I wouldn't stay with that company, yeah. right? I'd go find, there's plenty of other companies and plenty of other jobs and too little time in life. So um, I feel like the companies that I've worked 
for in the past, including Pega. I worked for a company called Unica. Um, I worked for SAS, who I have a lot of respect for. The analytics company um, does a lot of really great things and has a great culture. Um, I worked for UPS. So you talked about drones, and that got my, uh, you know, UPS. Spidey, <laughs> my UPS spidey senses going. Um, was a great company. I mean, it really, it just did a thousand little things right, and usually on behalf of its employees and its customers. You know, so both, like, totally agree. Like you're you're not going to have a customer centric approach if your employees don't love working for you and and want to get up every day and 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 deliver a great experience in in the interactions they have so vince if you if you're talking to a customer you know so you and i have drunk the kool-aid but your customer is like you know i just need to make this really efficient really you know make my ai good make my crm perfect you know i want maximum clicks maximum opens maximum you know e-commerce uh, dollar value whatever oh wait, wait, wait. You know, the thing that's important is treat your employees well. I, I'm wondering, you know, you, you, you work in this whole domain of, of creating AI that's empathic. Where, where does that sit in the conversation? And, and, and how do you have flags, ethical checks that work at the employee level before they get to the programming? Um, yeah, I think that uh, there are ways to uh, simulate ahead of time how good or bad your set of communications are gonna be with your customers. Now let's face it, some of it has to do with like how good your products and services really are in terms right. of whether they're a good fit or not. Yeah, if your you brand know, sucks I mean, in the first place and your products are shit, then you know, where are you going? Yeah. What are you trying to do? Yeah, your, your, your only hope is, is, you know, sort of, nefarious marketing honestly send the tide yeah. <laughs> right um but uh i i will say that you know that um i think that the way to 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 probably um make sure that in the end what you if you've got a good mix of at least you know some decent products that are going to fit for some people um that if you're going to be empathetic, then what you're really going to do is you're going to figure out a way until you can create more products and services, you maybe find white space and you send that back into, you know, engineering, right? And it comes back later with some new products that fit these areas that we want to strategically go after. But that taking a while, right. uh, setting that aside, you want to find the people that are going to be best suited for what you got. And you want, and, and one size is not going to fit all. So your job then is to stop trying to push things to people that are things to people that they, that they don't need. They're going to be disappointed like, with. Or... They'll be disappointed with. They're irrelevant. Um, they'll see as noise and annoyance. They'll get pissed off and they'll just like trash you as a brand. Um, so that should be your job. And, and that to me is like empathetic marketing. Mm -hmm. It's, actually saying i'm going to listen to you and to what your preferences are and it, you know what if it's not a great fit i'm not going to market to you there there's if there's not enough of a market for my products and services of people that really need it i've got a problem i've got a bigger business problem but you know if i have some decent fit then my job is to find those people that it really does fit well with
the word that I picked up on I loved is decent. I'm thinking that decency and one word really sums up empathetic marketing. And the word is no. The ability to say no, this is not right for you. Oh, wow. You know, they're not going to make me waste my money on that. I want to come back to them. And when they hear them say yes. In your, in your, you have a white paper that um, Pega is coming up with shortly. In it, you talk about the ability to have an ethical bias check. Mm. This is a really interesting concept for me. I mean, it's, it's already one thing in the, the black box of AI to understand what on earth and how the decision making is happening. But can you elaborate on what this actually means, an ethical bias check and how you plan to put that into place? Yeah, yeah, it's really um, exciting f- capability for us because we think it's that it gets into this topic that we've been talking about, you know, uh, of being um, accountable to what you're about to do and having some like, you know, uh, framework for that ahead of time, having some doing your homework a little, honestly. And, and that homework is running this through some kind of a game, if you will, a simulation that says, this is what I want to do. I know I've got these customers. I've already done some things with them. So I can pull them in and kind of simulate this and say, all right, what we're about to, to, to treat them with on our website and when they open up their mobile app, if they call into us and they go to into an IVR and they eventually get to an agent, what we told our agents to talk with them about, here's those things. And you, you know what? we can look at the distribution of those things. We can look at how many people of what kind are are going to get these treatments. And then we can say to ourselves, is that fair? Is that ethical? Um, So is that fair fair in their eyes? Is that what you're trying to replicate? Theirs and societies, right? I I mean, I think it's both, but um, I think theirs, yes. I mean, Would it be fair to me if I was of a certain persuasion or color or whatever, and I didn't get a loan offered just because of that, not because of my ability to repay it or anything else, but just because I was male or female or of certain ethnicity? Most of us would say, no, that's not fair. Um, But this ethical bias check will tell you whether you're skewed and whether that's what's about to happen, most likely. Um, and, And then it gives you a chance to change the strategy, you know, change the way that you're marketing that. So maybe it is a little bit more, um, you know, evenly distributed or fair. Well, how on earth do you end up having an ethical framework, an ethical bias check when you kind of need that as a people up front? Because at the end of the day, what so often seems to happen is that you and I, white males, we come with a certain set of biases that are programmed into us. And you and I can relate. Yeah, we've got this and that and connection. And, you know, some black person doesn't connect so well because they have a different experience than that. So how do you end up even writing an ethical bias check that works? Well, I think all you can do is you can, um, you can highlight the, the problem, potential problem ahead of time 
to get somebody to actually take action on that, you know, read out, if you will, is a whole different story. Right. And you have to have that relationship with the client because that's what they want. And, and they come with, you know, God forbid, their own clients, uh, biases. And, and so you have to kind of confront that when you're in the client relationship and, and, and make them aware. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we have to be pragmatic business is business. But at the same time, you want that sort of pre-work to be done. I mean, you called it being accountable and responsible, which I, one of the reasons why I've really enjoyed looking at Pega, because there's so many, so easy shortcuts at working and, you know, getting it better, making the better headline, you know, selling more shit. But if you're doing that hard work up front, it may not get you all the customers right away because you have to say no to some people. But ultimately, I think not only does from this feeling I get from your employees, the people I've interacted with, you feel a little more pride in what you're doing. You also have a certain dominion over what you're doing and, and, and you're trying to do something for the better. And yet you have to deal with the clients and you know, they pay the piper and that's the way it is. So you, what kind of confrontations you have as you layer in these pre-work to get to the right ethical balance at the end. Yeah, I mean, there are some of these, um, this friction, if tricky. you will. That, yeah, sure. yeah, it's tr it's tricky. And um, and I think what w the approach that we try to take is we try to take an approach of, again, a long, you know, a long view. Like, don't do that because it, in the long run, you know, it, it's got risks, right? Um, now, we can't prevent them. We're going to, you know, we are a software vendor and we're going to give them some tools and we're going to bring in some best practices and we're going to, we're going to give our opinion, quite frankly, and we, we love to do that. And we like to believe it's a pretty decently informed opinion. Um, and we're also open to like, we're not always right. So we absolutely want to listen to, you know, the other sort of counter arguments. But if we're pretty sure we're right, because we've seen this movie before, um, then, then, you know, we're going to be pretty adamant about that. But in the end, it might be one of these things where, you know, we're not going to say we told you so, but it, they'll come back and, you know, we'll say, well, you, you know, yeah, you did it that way, but let's do it a different way next time. It's funny, you know, when you're working with customers, they, they live in their world. What perspective you can bring to them is also the fact that you've worked with other customers. And that type of additional perspective can be awfully useful for them. Like you, you said, you've seen that movie too, not necessarily in their industry, but that, that kind of perspective can also be very helpful. Maybe it will be useful just to finish, Vince, with one last uh, area, which is to talk about maybe an example of a customer you've worked with to give us a concrete example of how you've helped them through this sort of pandemic with an empathic AI that's... I mean, I'd love to hear one, one story like that. Yeah, there, there, I think one of our greatest stories is uh, a bank in Australia, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. It's a big bank in Australia. If it you're is, in yeah. the U.S., you may not have heard of it, but um, they're one of the top three banks, I think, in Australia. Sure. Um, they, um, they really did take this sort of approach of, you know, like a personal approach. A, I want to have the best possible conversation with my customer you know, in this moment, like every, every time I interact with a customer, it's, it's sort of an honor, you know, to be able to interact with them. So I want to do right. I want to, you know, be presenting something that is insightful, useful. And, 
and will help them, quite frankly. And what they, they find is that having that approach, that next best conversation approach has worked very well. And it even worked before the pandemic. Um, of course, there were crises like wildfires in Australia, sure. and they were able to. That was very... that was the big news before the pandemic, but then yeah. all of a sudden it died out, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, probably there's probably still fires going, but uh, right. this one's bigger. Who knows? Uh, right. Um, but the point is, is that um, in any crisis situation, it, and we comes back to our our sort of where we started with agility and the ability to you know, to talk to customers about what matters at that time, they uh, were able to respond very quick to the right kind of non-tone deaf messaging that they wanted to have out there for COVID. Um, because they were able to very quickly load in these COVID messages, which were all about, hey, we're here to help, you know, but they weren't one size fits all. They were targeted to the individual and what they already knew about that individual, whether that individual was likely to need like, you know, advice on cash or advice on financial management or, you know, knowledge about things that they, you know, services that were available to them, maybe even outside the bank. Um, and so they loaded all those up in kind of record time and were very quickly, every time these customers, and they've got millions of them, were coming on their website or talking with their agents, they were having a relevant conversation with them or more relevant than you know, again, a lot of brands would have because they were just, they were, you know, unable to react that quickly. I mean, I, I can only think that you, like I, have received God knows how many shitty, boring emails from CEO of this, CEO of that, usually about three weeks late, saying exactly the same thing. As if I give a shit. And, and, and if I... You know, I'd rather say nothing if that's all I'm capable of doing, doing late, irrelevant stuff. And so I can just imagine how, especially since these so many businesses, people, unemployment, the financial challenges, if you can be sensitive, because I mean, if, you know, if, if I'm in a sector that's thriving, I, let's say I, I manufacture PPE equipment, well, you know, I'm in, I'm hallelujah time. But if I'm not, you know, and I'm going out of business and my employees are, are going to have to live on welfare or whatever, I mean, you need to really be as sensitive to that. And, and then so I'm guessing that you found a way to help the Commonwealth Bank to find the information, dissect it quickly. It's never going to be perfect, I'm sure. Last question. How on earth does Commonwealth Bank have that as an attitude? It's unusual um, for, you know, and you think most people think of big banks, they think of like the ultra quintess quintessential company that doesn't get it, right? Or right. just wants to suck fees from me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but they, they have a different culture and I think it's working for them. It's the, it, it, they, they really did adopt this culture of, you know, we want to be relevant for our customers. And if, if that means like that, we're not going to, we're not going to say anything because we yeah, we've got a credit card we could push them because they don't have one, but they're going to try to figure out like if that is really a relevant thing to do, like would that person actually need more credit right now? Um, would that be useful in their life uh, to where they are? So having that kind of approach, and like you said, it's not perfect, um, yeah. but, but they are, I think, um, being more relevant than a lot of big banks are. 
Um, and uh, so that's, that's good. And I think, uh, you know, we can learn from, it's hard for a big organization to be sensitive to each individual that's doing business with them. It, it's hard. Um, but hey, they've got to aspire to do a better job. Because as you said, there's lots of brands that just suck at it. Mm-hmm. They just, it's so bad. And we always had the saying back early in my sort of technology career back when I was a programmer. It was like, I really cared about whether somebody that was, I was working with got it or not. We always use that term like, hey, he or she gets it or he or she doesn't. And I kind of like have that same attitude when I go on a website or I interact with a brand. It's like, I pretty quickly, you know, form a judgment. And it's, it's usually pretty common sense. It's like either this brand gets, gets it or they don't. And if they don't, then they better figure out what to do pretty quickly because I'm going to bail, but then the next person will bail, you know, and the next person will bail. So that's like really important lesson for big companies. They need to figure out a way to be more relevant to each individual. Last thought I have is, is, you know, Pega's dealing with lots of competitors all the same and you have to have great talent and a lot of them are programmers. And yet, and I will say this, you know, as an outsider, programmers aren't known for being empathic. But I get the feeling that you guys have kind of an inroad in creating, even amongst programmers and the techies, a more empathic culture. Would you say that's a, I mean, you're within, so what are you going to say? But I do get the feeling from the individuals that I've had a chance to talk to that it is something part of your culture as well, even amongst programmers, the least empathic type of profile often you might find. Yeah, I think that goes back to one of Pega's just, you know, and this might sound a little trite, but it's really true. Pega really cares about its own people. And that that's all the way down to whatever level you are in the company doing whatever job. I mean, we we really do like embrace people and their roles in the company. And we have a, you know, a good culture where we care about people. And we know that, you know, everybody is not going to be perfect. Um, but we try to strive to communicate. We you know, have to communicate across time zones and language barriers and all those kinds of things. But if you treat people with respect uh, and you listen to them, and then you really, your goal in, in life is to just do a better job, and you're really showing that you're trying to help that person ultimately do a better job, then that kind of has a um, snowball effect. You know, it catches on. And I think that that's the feeling that generally there is in PEGA. It's like, we all are really trying to help each other. And there's times, hey, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. There's politics and, you know, it's a, sure. it's a company of 5,000 people. That's right. Big ass company. We're, we're a good sized company and we've and got often, our warts. Yeah, of course you do. And, and yeah. I mean, the, the notion of scale is so hard. But anyway, I, I congratulate you guys and Vince. I'm, I'm looking forward to the event on the 2nd of June. Pega World. Virtual Inspire. Of course. Uh, Frankly, I would prefer it if we were in real, but this is the times we will enjoy, we will inspire. Uh, How can someone track you down and follow you and or connect in, find out about the new white paper? What's the best way? Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Really interesting conversation. Um, You can, uh, if if you want to learn more about uh, Pega, just go to Pega.com. If you want to um, if you want to listen into us uh, for Pega Inspire um, virtual event, 
It's uh, June 2nd at 9 a.m. Eastern. And just go to pega.com and sign up. It'll be easy to do. Uh, if you want to um, connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn, VJeffs. Um, also, I write a blog on a site called Customer Think. And I've written about um, over 30 articles on there on the, on the same topic that we've talked about today pretty much. Um, so uh, you can check some of that out and give me the feedback. Tell me whether you, whether you think my writing sucks or not. I want to get better. Feedback <laughs> is gold. Hey, Vince, yep. thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, great to talk with you. Really, really a pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.